It's time for the Heli Conspiracy Podcast. We are your host, Agent ETA. Agent Ether. Agent Kruger. And Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Discord. Links in the description. This week's episode, Ancient Artifacts. Or out-of-place artifacts and stuff. Or what's that doing there? Yeah, yeah pretty much. What are we calling this one? I, I We should have figured that out ahead of time. Uh, they're called... That don't make no sense. Boop arts. Out-of-place artifacts. Okay, so art of, okay, yeah. So yeah, it is our uh, out-of-place artifacts. Okay, that's what I thought. Should yeah. have called oop art. Oop art. Which there is an absolute metric ton of different uh, out-of-place artifacts all over the world, every continent, every country. I mean, there, it's, it's an endless rabbit hole that is one of my favorite ones, to be honest. You know, and we could make so many episodes off of this. This is kind of one of those like uh, treasure troves, you know, where you could just keep on going. Some of these uh, stuff, even some of the stuff that we're going to mention, uh, you can do a whole episode on them for sure. But we wanted to mention a bunch of them. The one I'm doing, you could definitely do an episode on just this one if you wanted to. Easily you could. Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess I'll jump right into my per- my personal out-of-place artifact. Now, I hadn't heard of this one before. But I was listening to a different podcast. I, I listened to a ton of different podcasts. And one of them was, uh, it was an interview. And uh, they were talking, they mentioned something called the moon shaft. I'm like, the moon shaft? I've never heard of that before. What is it? So I read up on it and I was like, just so happens we're doing an episode where this would be perfect for. So eh, there we go. Anyway, so the moon shaft. We're talking about something that was discovered during World War II in Czechoslovakia. And we're talking about October 1944. We have some interesting evidence for this because we have a diary that was kept by a soldier named Antonin Horak. That's A-N-T-O-N-I-N-H-O-R-A-K. I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. So we're going to go ahead and talk, call him uh, Tony. And uh, when he moved to America later on in his life, I think he did go by Tony. So I'm not hey, just Tony. making that up. Yeah, hey, Tony. How's it over there Tony. in Czechoslovakia? Hey, you know. Hey. I'm walking here. <laughs> but, yeah, so his diary wasn't published until 1965, even though the diary takes place, you know, in the 1944, did I say? 40, yeah, 44. Um, and so it, it didn't publish it until much later. And because of political instability in Czechoslovakia, no one was actually able to go check up on his claims until much, much later, like until the 1980s. Because if you went before then, you might have ended up dead. So mm-hmm. what did he say? Why are we talking about this on this show? What does it have to do with anything? Well, it all starts on October 22nd, 1944. Tony was shot and stabbed in his hand and knocked out. Uh, he was, his long story short, his battalion was under attack and they pretty much all got wiped out except for him and two other people and they were injured and they were probably left for dead. When he woke up, a good Samaritan named Slavic 
had found him and his two other co-soldiers. I don't know if they were friends. Maybe they hated each other. Who knows? Their names were Yurik and Martin. And this good Samaritan, he took them to a cave and tended to their wounds and said that, you know, I'll be back later with food. And here's, here's a excerpt from the diary. Slavic moved rocks in the cranny and opened a low cleft, the entrance to this roomy grotto. Placing Martin in a niche, we were astonished to see Slavic become ceremonious. He crossed himself, each of us, the grotto, and with a deep bow, its back wall, where a hole came to my attention. He told the soldiers not to go to, into the back of the cave, that he had gone there when he was a child, and it was nothing but a confusing maze full of pits and poisonous gas, and it was definitely haunted. So they said, okay, sure. They agreed not to go and explore because what else are they going to do? They're all injured anyways. Slavic left and he promised to come back with more food. They, the soldiers themselves didn't have anything to eat on them. They had only water that they could boil and a little bit of brandy. So for meals, they would put, you know, like a drop of brandy in there. The weather got really bad. And even though he was supposed to return with food, Tony assumed that he wouldn't be able to for several days at the least, and that they were probably going to starve to death, or at least, you know, be very, very uncomfortable while they were there. On October 23rd, the next day, they had a breakfast of hot, hot water and a drop of brandy. Fearing that they were going to starve, Tony went to the back of the cave and threw the hole back there, looking for hibernating animals. He navigated the cave and he left a mark on the side so that he could find his way back. It's a good old uh, cave navigating method. If you've played Minecraft, you know it well. If you're navigating a cave, <laughs> you just leave a torch on your right hand or your left hand side. Either way works, but you leave it on the same side. And then when you're coming back, then you'll switch the side. So if you left it on your right hand side, when you're coming back, it's on the left hand side and it leaves a path that's very easy to follow. He did that. He didn't have a bunch of torches, unfortunately, but he was able to leave marks on the wall to help him find his way back. So he navigated and he found it that it was actually surprisingly easy to navigate, unlike the description that he was given. And he always took the easiest path when he was given a choice. After about an hour and 30 minutes of navigating through this cave, he came to a long level passage that ended in a barrel sized hole. He crawled through that hole, and here's what he wrote about it. I froze in amazement. There stands something like a large black silo framed in white. Regard, uh, regaining breath, I thought that this is a bizarre natural wall of curtain of black salt or ice or lava, but I became perplexed, then awestruck, when I saw that it is a glass-smooth flank of a seemingly man-made structure which reaches into the rocks on all sides. Beautifully cylindrically curved, it indicates a huge body. <laughs> Those dang cryptids, huh? It indicates a huge body with a diameter of about 25 meters, which is about 82 feet, where this structure and the rocks meet. Large stalagmites and stalactites form that glittering white frame. The wall is uniformly blue-blackish, its material seems to combine properties of steel, flint, rubber. The pick made no mark and bounced off vigorously. Even the thought of a tower-sized artifact embedded in rock in the middle of an obscure mountain 
in a wild region where not even a legend known about the ruins, mining industry overgrown with age-old cave deposits, is bewildering. The fact is appalling. It's kind of a strange description because I'm not sure what's really appalling about it, but basically he found this strange, flat, or slightly curved material that he wasn't really sure what it was, and he hit it with his pick, and the pick wouldn't do any damage, and it kind of bounced off of it like it was rubber, but it was as hard as steel. So we're talking about a pretty strange material here. I'm not really sure why he found it appalling. It's sort of, I, That kind of seems strange to me, that description, but uh, I guess if you see something that's really out of place, I suppose that you know your brain just says, this shouldn't be here, and I suppose that could be appalling. Anyways, the object was smooth and had a crack in it going up, sort of at an angle. The bottom of the crack appeared to be smooth, or I mean the floor, if you look you know, in the crack, the floor of the crack, appeared to be smooth limestone that dropped steeply. He threw in a torch and it fizzled out and sputtered like it had hit water. He tried to crawl down the crack, but it was too steep and he had to backtrack. At this point, he decided to head back to camp in the front of the cave, and he got there at about 4 p.m. in the evening. The, uh, the Good Samaritan, Slavic, and his daughter, Hanka, H-A-N-K-A, had brought them food a little bit later. So even though the weather was really bad, this uh, local sheep herder, I think it was pretty sure it was a sheep herder, you know, he was really helping them out. And j- just a little bit, of, I don't think I said any context, but the, they, were, they were in an area that had been taken over by Nazis, and they were sort of like these underground guerrilla fighters. So they weren't really, you know, probably well-equipped or anything. And in the diary, he says that even before this, the battalion had, been, had already started running out of food and everything. The fellow himself, Tony, was apparently from like a wealthy family, and the Nazis just took everything from them, and he ended up going into fighting like this freedom fighter-type army. There's a whole lot of other backstory like that. You guys can look up the the um, the diary if you want to look at all, all the backstory and stuff. But uh, for this episode, we're all talking about different topics. So I'm just kind of doing like the short, short version. All right. So the next day on October 24th, Tony cut their belts and braided them into an eight meter long rope. He went back to the strange object, getting there about 10 a.m. When he was there, he cut some stalactites and rolled them down the crack. When they landed, they made like a click and a huge echo, or enormous echoes. And that, so it was kind of weird, because he heard the sound of rushing noise, like water, but when he rolled this in there, it landed on what sounded like a solid floor. So he decided to go in using the rope that he, he had made out of the belts. And when he went in there, he dropped a little slid, and then he came to rest against a wall, made from the same strange material as the one he had entered. He lit some torches, and he found that he was in a large, curved, or moon-shaped shaft formed by cliff-like walls of the strange material. The lights from the torches did not reach the ceiling. Sound in there seemed to echo and reverberate and sort of amplify And he describes how it sounded very strange, and he actually says that he couldn't really describe it. The ground inside of the shaft was a solid lime pavement. The distance between the concave front wall and uh, and convex, or whatever, it's like a moon shape. So yeah, I guess they'd both be 
what one would be con- concave. Well, anyways, you know what I mean. One's going to be curved in, one's going to be curved out. <laughs> but the distance between the wall, two walls was about eight meters, and the back wall was about 25 meters long. He went back to camp after having climbed in there. The next day, on October 25th, um, he, well, for starters, in the diary, he says that he didn't tell his friends about the strange object, and here's what he says about it. He says, I'm glad that Yurik's thigh is not yet well enough for him to want to go with me poaching for bats. It is better that he knows nothing about the cave's secret. So that's what he told his friends, that he was going back there to hunt for animals, specifically bats. But this passage is kind of strange. He says he's glad that he's not well enough to come with me because it's better that he doesn't know about the secret. He doesn't really explain why that's better, that he just kind of throws it out there, which I'm kind of like, hmm, why not? Why don't you want your friends to know about this? So he he didn't tell the other two people with him about this mysterious object. It was He kept it to himself. Anyways, he went back and he brought some more torches this time. And even with more light and using a pole to hide a, uh, he had like a lantern with him and he used a pole to hold that up above his head. He still couldn't see the ceiling. He fired a couple bullets up, which made a roar like an express train, but he didn't see any evidence of, a, of an impact. He fired the gun at the walls and he got a large blue-green sparks and such sounds that I had to hold my ears between my knees and flames danced wildly. So that suggests that the top of the shaft would be very, very far up if he hit the sides and he saw flames, but if he hit the, the ceiling, he didn't see any flames at all. I say to be in a, in a confined area like that and shooting at the walls, you got to be pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty silly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not a good yeah. idea. So he dug at the floor with the pick that he brought at the corners because in the corners, the limestone was thinner than like in the middle. So he dug up on one side. He didn't really find a whole lot. On another side, he found some bones and he took three teeth of the bones. It was, you know, as uh, he wasn't sure what it was at the time. Now, at about 1.5 meters below the limestone at the back wall, near the bones, he found a vertical, finely fluted, undulating pattern. It seemed warmer than the smooth surface. And he said that he tested it with, like, was only a tiny bit warmer, but he tested it, like, with his lips and his ear to see that, it, to make sure, that because those are very sensitive, to, to check how warm it was. And while he was checking it with his ear, he heard a distant noise like a turbine running, which is kind of an interesting detail, I think. So he left when the torches were out. He went and caught some bats that him and his friends ate later on that day. Yummy. Mm-mm. Hey, you don't know. They could taste good. Like chicken. Yeah, I bet, oh, I bet they do taste like chicken. And you know what chicken what tastes taste? like? Ebola. Like what? Like Ebola. Uh, it could. <laughs> chicken can taste like that, but <laughs> chicken is delicious. That's what chicken tastes like. <laughs> At least in my Hell opinion. Yeah. Hey, maybe somebody doesn't like chicken. I don't know. Who am I to judge? Smoked chicken thighs made in a butter bath. Oh, babe. Or I, I just, I'm partial to fried chicken. I don't eat it that often because it's like really bad for you, but man, is it delicious. All right. But anyways, Slavek and his other daughter, Olga, came back in the evening with more food and supplies. That's on the 25th. So on the 26th, 
he went back and fired his gun some more, and one of the shots caused a half-finger-long welt that gave off a pungent smell. So it appears that uh, this material was not completely impervious. You just needed a great deal of force to damage it. He dug some more in the left horn, and the wavy pattern extended downwards. He dug in the right horn a little bit more, but didn't find anything. He climbed back out, and when he got outside, he started noticing that there were some enamel-like flecks on some of the stalactites near the outer wall, the outer wall of this strange object. He tried to take a sample, but it turned into a fine powder, and he couldn't, could not really be collected with unless he had some kind of glue or something to, to get it. He returned back to the camp, and again, Slavic brought some more supplies. On the 27th, uh, Martin unfortunately died from his injuries. Tony and Yurik decided to leave on the following day, since the only reason they had to stay was because Martin couldn't, he was injured so badly that he couldn't really move. But uh, that day on the 27th, he went back again to the moonshaft. Oh, this is after, um, I don't think I mentioned, but uh, they, went, they went and buried to, uh, uh, Martin. I'm sorry. They went and buried Martin. And after they got back from that, he went again to the moonshaft and he looked for around it for like passages and, you know, other ways to access it and see what's behind it. But he didn't find anything. He went back in and he made some sketches and you can find these sketches in his diary, and it actually gives you a really, really good idea of the dimensions of the moonshaft and the cave outside of it and like where the, uh, the crack in the wall is and all that stuff. Uh, it's really interesting to look at, obviously, being an audio podcast. I can't show it to you, but it kind of helps you visualize how you have like this crescent moon-shaped uh, shaft, I guess, with it's made out of walls that are very mysterious. Anyways, he dug some more, didn't really find anything, and then he went back to camp at around 4 o'clock, and they made preparations to leave the following day. On the 28th of October, he cut his name and some other stuff on a leather strap, and he put that, along with the golden back of his watch, onto a, into a glass bottle, and he plugged it with some clay and a pebble, and he left this in the moon shaft. And this is from, uh, from the diary. He says, I sat there by my fire speculating. What is this structure with walls two meters thick and a shape that I cannot imagine of any purpose known nowadays? How far does it reach into the rocks? Is there more behind the moon shaft? Which incident or who put it into this mountain? Is it a fossilized man-made object? Is there truth in legends like Plato's about a long-lost civilization with magic technologies that our rationale cannot grasp nor believe? He says in his diary that he wanted to keep it secret because he didn't want treasure hunters to cause damage before a scientific team could arrive. Yurik asked and received Hanka's, uh, one of the daughters, Hanka's hand in marriage, and as they left their cave, Slovak and his daughters concealed the cave and covered up their tracks as they left. And the reason why they might do that is to cover up the tracks because they're in hostile territory right now and they don't want to be tracked by enemy soldiers. So Tony came back to the area many years later to kind of look around, but he didn't, as far as I, I could find, he didn't go back into the cave. Now the teeth, the teeth that he took from the cave that he dug up were identified by an expert as belonging to an Ursus cave bear which is long extinct. We're talking about like a prehistoric type bear here. The crack in the side of the moonshaft seemed too small for a bear to get in, 
and he couldn't find any hole above where the moon shaft was. Yeah, you know, like when he went back to poke around, I guess he looked above where he thought it was to see if there's like a sinkhole or something that could lead into the moon shaft that maybe the bear could have fallen in there. But I mean, again, it was probably thousands of years or tens of thousands of years since that bear was in there anyways. So who knows? The well-known Ted Phillips was in contact with Tony and he was given the location of the moon shaft. He was unable to go for a while because of the political instability, but he was eventually able to go in the 80s and investigate. He was uh, given sketches and coordinates and information to go find where the cave was. And like, so the sketches that he was given by Tony were like uh, a sketch from like a distance showing the entire mountain range and with marks showing where the cave would be on the mountains. So he went to Ted Phillips, he went and um, if you haven't heard of Ted Phillips, he's a fella that worked with uh, uh, J. Allen Hynek, who's a name that you've definitely heard on this show before. But he was, So he was one of the bigger names in ufology. And he said that this, Ted Phillips I'm talking about, said that this was the most important thing he was involved with. And that's kind of saying a lot, because he's done a lot of investigate. Well, he did. Unfortunately, he's passed away. But he did a lot of investigations over the years. So when he went to the cave... He found evidence, physical evidence that matched the story. Like he found like bandages. He found um, the number, I don't know, 22 or 23, I forget which, indicating October 20, 22nd or 23rd, or the day that they were there. Um, he found the initials of Uric, stuff like that. Like he found physical evidence of um, like old bandages or whatever, like that they'd actually been there and that he knew that this was the actual cave but the back of the cave had caved in and was no longer accessible. And one of the ideas, the theories that this might be is because there was a lot of like bombardment and bombs and whatever being dropped in the area. And that could have caused it to kind of collapse and fall in. So unfortunately he wasn't able to investigate on this time and he had to leave, but um, he was trying to go back and find funding, but I don't think he ever was able to get into the cave there were lots of other expeditions to explore the area and look for the moon shaft, but nobody that at least that I could find has ever found the object itself. Although people have found the cave and it, I think it would take like a lot of, a lot of material or a lot of resources. It'd be very expensive. You'd have to like take machinery there and like dig it out. And even when you dug it out it, by the descriptions, it's a whole network of caves. So there might be multiple collapse uh, points of you know collapsement or whatever you would say it would probably be very very difficult and very expensive to get to this thing but what if they could use some sort of like like muon scanning type deal or whatever these things you read about sometimes what if they could find it that way that might be easier than trying to tunnel to it but even though since the 80s there have been multiple expeditions or multiple people trying to find the thing nobody's really found it yet unfortunately um, a lot of the caves in the areas have cave-ins and they're all seem to be very unstable, but, uh, who knows anything's possible. One of the possibilities that this could actually be like a natural formation somehow. Um, that's one of the skeptical explanations I read, but based on the guy's description, it was just too perfectly shaped and too smooth and just, I don't know. It just, it doesn't sound like a natural, like sto stone, formation of some kind 
And if you look at like the age that it takes for one of these caves to form, that suggests that it took maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Even like I read on one, one case that a cave like that might be as old as 300 million years. So this artifact, whatever it is, could have been there for an incredibly long time. And the fact that it had, well, not the fact, but the description saying that it had like a limestone floor in it, that would suggest that it wasn't always like that, but that had formed over time. And that would take thousands and thousands of years, the very least, to form that. And I'm not a geologist, but it would take an incredible amount of time. So it kind of makes your imagination go wild that this could be like a really ancient artifact of some kind, way older than there should be. Like the people should not have been able to make something like this, you know, so tens of thousands of years ago or even 300 million years ago or whatever. That's the going rate, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt, but that's like the going rate with all these, these finds. Yeah. And maybe it's just the material that they are made of or whatever they are, just like it decays faster. I don't know. Just like maybe it just, and like our, our coordinates for, to date these these items gets kind of thrown off or or the item or structure itself is so very antique and so very old that the geology around it has formed around it. yeah exactly yeah that's what i was getting at is like it was there you know and then it exactly it was the geology formed around it and it took that long because it was stuck in the mountain it wasn't like you know loose or whatever you have this big massive giant object of some kind that uh, he said at the beginning, it was the it implied that it had like a, a circumference of like eighty feet or something. So we're talking about a mm-hmm. fairly sizable object here that's just sort of embedded in the mountain. Like, how did it get there? It's crazy, yeah. right? One thing that does make me kind of skeptical on this one is that uh, first of all, he didn't tell anybody else that he was there with at the time. So we have the physical evidence found by Ted Phillips that he was. Probably in that cave, right? So that's probably a fact. He probably did hide out with injuries in that cave. That seems to be pretty conclusive that that actually happened. But why would he not tell his buddy? Like, if I found something like that and I came out, I would be like, guys, guys, you're never going to believe what I found down there. This is unbelievable. And he, yeah, he, he doesn't, he says, oh, yeah, it's better that he doesn't know, but he never really explains that. At one point, he says, oh, yeah, well, maybe not tell anybody until we have a chance to get some scientists here to check it out. But it just, I don't, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me and anything's possible, but it just seems kind of strange to me. The way that the diary is written, it's written like, like a novel. It's written like fiction. Like there's one part where he's going down the tunnel into the object or into the shaft. And he says, yeah, there was like a, a lot of like sharp things in the tunnel And, oh, yeah, they, you know, I I got cut up and then, you know, I had to retreat and then I came back and then, you know, I was familiar with it. So they didn't cut me as much of this time. It's like, well, that's, you know, if I was going through a tunnel and I was describing that, I'd be like, yeah, it cut me on my forearm and my leg and it was really uncomfortable. But the way he describes the cuts that he was given, it's kind of the way that you would describe it if you're writing a novel. And to be specific, when you're writing a novel or, you know, like fiction, you write it in such a way to leave a little bit to the reader's imagination. So you don't necessarily say that I got a cut here, a cut here, and a cut here. You say, yeah, I went, I slid through this thing, and man, I got some bad cuts on the way down. But you know, if you don't specify where the cuts are, 
then it it engages the reader because the reader has to imagine where those cuts might be or how it happened or whatever. That's just sort of, you know, part of writing. If you read a novel, pay attention to that and you'll notice that they leave out details on purpose, at least not everybody, but a lot of authors do, to engage the reader and sort of force the reader to imagine those details for themselves. That's how the whole diary is written. And you can Google this, just Google Moonshaft and you'll find the diary. And to me, it's written more like a novel and less like an actual account. Now that in and of itself does not prove anything that doesn't mean that it was, you know, a fake tale that he was just sitting there and daydreaming while he was stuck in this cave with his injuries, wondering if the soldiers were going to come by any minute and kill him. And he was just bored to death and had nothing else to do with his mind. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that the way the, the way the diary is written, it just kind of makes me a little skeptical. And if it's out there and somebody finds it great, I'm not saying that I disbelieve it entirely, but I am saying that I just kind of wait until somebody actually finds the thing, you know? You know you know what? It's kind of funny that you mentioned that uh, it's written somewhat like a novel, because mm-hmm. to me, this tale, uh, well, I mean, tale or, you know, historical account, whatever you want to believe, it kind of reminded me of like a very light version of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mount, uh, what was it, At the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which was, was, I think it was, it was written in the mid thirties or something, I think. Um, I think Something I'd have like to, that, but yeah, I'd have to double check on that one. He was, um, I forget the exact dates, but yeah, it was definitely early 1900s. So, I mean, he would have definitely had the opportunity to read that book. Maybe it inspired him to, you know, create his own tale. I'm just saying, you know, as a skeptic, it's possible, you know, maybe he elaborated on his experience. Cool. That's actually a good point. I hadn't thought of that, but it does seem to have some similarities to, to that story. That's a really good point. Yeah. Which by the way, I love that book. Yeah. A lot of HP love craft stuff is actually in the um, public domain, but his career spanned the date when they cut off the public domain. So some of it is, and some of it isn't, but I was Uh able to find at the bookstore, a collection of all of his works and one, you know, one nice little bound book or one big bound book. And it was only like 20 bucks or something. So it's a really good read. If you guys are, if anybody's into that kind of stuff, I highly recommend it. It's really good. That was pretty much the moon shaft. I mean, I think it's a really, really interesting story, but until they find it, that's all it is, just a story. I really hope that they do find it some at some point. I really do. I'm very hopeful and optimistic, but on the other hand, you know, <laughs> probably not. All right. I think Agent <laughs> Ether is up next. Go for it. All right. 2,000-year-old battery? What? <laughs> so, what? 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 <laughs> Have you guys heard You're about crazy. this? It's been in the, yeah, the paper a couple Baghdad times. Baghdad battery? The Baghdad I, battery. I thought like if you put them in your freezer, it makes them last longer. Is, <laughs> is that what <laughs> happened here? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in the 1800s, Count Alessandro Volta was credited with discovering or uh, inventing an electric cell, which would later become the battery. But the question is, what if instead there was a civilization 2,000 years ahead of its time. If you look back to uh, an empire in Persia, the Parthian Empire, which I think is now Iran, it was the cultural and political hub, and they were known for their art and statuary and sculptures and metalwork and some jewelry too. And they would uh, plate silver onto the gold. They would take gold sheets and hammer it onto the silver 
And sometimes they could get the gold sheets like really, really thin and they would hammer that onto things. And that's what they mean by gilding. Like you talk about the gilded age, everything was uh, imprinted with gold leaves. But one technique that was not used back then, nor is there any evidence of it being used in the art or in the literature, is something called electroplating. And this is what some people believe the Baghdad bag, Baghdad battery was uh, used for. So it was discovered by this archaeologist, Wilhelm Koenig, and it's a clay jar with an asphalt stopper, and then there's an iron rod surrounded by this copper cylinder, and when you fill it with an electrolyte solution, it actually produces one volt of electricity. So electroplating is this process that's used to coat one metal to another, and you can even, you can look up on YouTube and you could do it at home. You can like put uh, copper onto like coins, like quarters, and you pass like an electrical current through this salty solution and the metal ions travel and allow transfer from the donor to the recipient. So you can plate like silver with gold this yeah. way. You guys heard about this? Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 But in order to do that. Alchemy. The gold has to be dissolved in something like cyanide. So it's a very sophisticated process to do. It's not something that's like, you know, intuitive or super easy. And yeah, it's not something you're going to stumble upon. Right, exactly. It would have to be very intentional. So you have this thing. It can act as a battery. And nobody's quite sure what it was used for and what it really did. So when well, I've heard I've heard some theories about it maybe being used for like what they thought could have been like a health treatment or something like that. You know, I have not heard this. No, a health treatment. The shock or energy that you might be able to absorb from it, you know, they thought could have been medicinal in their own time. That, that should, I mean, that's I, I actually like the the theory of electroplating a, a whole lot more, and it actually sounds like a very a lot more utilitarian, you know. And uh, I like that version more, but it just it's one of the uh, theories that I had heard uh, about this was, yeah, they, they may have used it for some kind of medicinal purpose that may not have worked for anything, but they thought maybe it did because it gave you this jolt of electricity. It's not much, but maybe enough to feel. I don't know. Either way, I mean, it sounds like a battery, like the way it was created and the fact that you can get a reading from it. I mean, I don't see what else it could be except a battery. The theory that I hate the most, and hate's a strong word, I guess, it uh, annoys me, is like uh, some of these archaeologists or historians that have weighed in on this, like give such a, like a lackluster excuse or, or theory, I guess you know, is a better word. Uh, some some uh, archaeologists say, oh, it was just used for storing scrolls. I'm like, what? <laughs> has, what? What do you mean? Right, it has no. the whole copper <laughs> and the iron rod, and it just so happens that it will produce a reading just so happens by coincidence. Yeah. 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 Well, well and just also by its construction. Yeah. They also it say was obviously meant to do something. It's, it's too unbelievable. Like to think that a civilization could be so technologically advanced and because it's too unbelievable, it must not be true. No. Cause we must be the apex of human civilization, right? We, right we are now. the most advanced. Yeah. Currently, currently. Right. Right. <laughs> We'd like to think so, right? Huh. 
So there's also claims that the whole thing's just not authentic, that the origin site where it was unearthed wasn't really documented very well. So that maybe it's it's not actually from, from 2,000 years ago, or maybe it was tampered with to make it look like a battery. Or maybe it was the planet Venus. Maybe it was Venus. It could have been. Unfortunately, <laughs> though, well, it, was, it was stolen or, you know, looted during the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. And it's one of the most famous artifacts that went missing and continues to be lost. And it's probably in, probably in Bill Gates' basement. <laughs> yeah. That'd be really cool to have in your collection. But very selfish. If anybody's listening to this podcast and they have it, please return it. Yes, we appreciate that you're very, very rich, but you can show that by buying, you know, a $250,000 sports watch. They have those, apparently, and not an, you know, irreplaceable artifact. Exactly. Yeah. All right, and I have a second artifact here that I was researching that I found very interesting, and it is also from 2,000 years ago, and it's an old earthquake detector. So this one's kind of interesting, yeah? Uh, the Book of Han is one of the 24 histories that covers the Han Dynasty. And in this history, there's the history of the life and inventions of one man in specific, and they're gone over in considerable detail, including his attempt, and some people would say a successful one, of a seismoscope. This was Zong Heng. So earthquakes were pretty devastating. You know, even today we're looking for ways to predict them. And the same was true in the past, although they were thought to be caused by more uh, supernatural forces. So during the Han Dynasty, there was this idea of oracles of the winds and clouds, or specifically looking to things like cloud patterns and the balance of yin and yang, and timing of the winds to predict things like earthquakes, to predict supernatural events. And Zhang Heng actually thought that the chief cause of the earthquake was that air, which should be allowed to naturally move from place to place, likes to lurk in vacant spaces. But any cause that rouses it or compresses it and drives it into a narrow place, it needs to be released and escape, and it does this through earthquakes. So that's kind of interesting, kind of natural and supernatural. But this guy, Zhang Heng, was the Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio. What? <laughs> the Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> He's the DiCaprio of his time? About of his time. He was, he was one hot dude, you know. What do they say? He Smart was the what's the eating new, Gilbert Grape? Oh, my Sparks God. the new sexy. Oh, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, what was he in that we just watched recently? Uh, Catch Me If You Can. Have you guys seen that? Oh, oh, that's yeah, a good movie, yeah. But is Tom that the Hanks? one with the Tom Hanks? Is yeah. It also? I don't uh, think I've seen that one. Oh, I know what Wolf you're talking of Wall about. Street is my... I've seen it a couple times. It's tons of fun. It's it's one of those movies where when you get to the end, you're like, really? Like, I don't want to put any spoilers out there because ETA hasn't seen it, but you go watch that movie. Which one? Wolf of Wall Street? No, no. We're talking about um, Catch Me If You Can. Oh, Catch Me If You Can? Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Like at the end, it has has a good ending, but on the other hand, I'm like, ah, I don't know if I like that ending. It's it actually is based on is it like, anticlimactic, based on a true story. You know, like that's what actually happened to the guy. But I'm like, ah, all right, I guess. I liked the ending. Continuing it on with uh, not Leonardo DiCaprio. Hang, uh, he would go on to create an earthquake weather vane to determine the direction of origin of the earthquake. And the literature describes it as a bronze urn shaped device with a pendulum inside connected to eight dragon figures. And they were mounted to point in the cardinal and secondary directions. And then below each dragon is a toad. And when there's an earthquake, the dragon releases a metal ball and the toad catches it in its mouth, indicating the direction of the earthquake. Wow. Hmm. And there's pictures of the uh, replicas online. And it's it's really quite, you know, uh, interesting and kind of pretty to see. Hmm. But it also has uh, some complicated gears. It's connected by cranks and a right-angled lever that, when tripped, raises the dragon head to allow the ball to drop. There's a vertical pin passing through the slot on the crank, a catching device, a pivot projection, a sling, an attachment for the swing, and a support bar for the pendulum. So it's really quite sophisticated kind of reminds me of like a clock the way it functions very uh functional clock and and his peers were actually quite skeptical until it successfully detected an earthquake 500 kilometers away but after his death no one was left to calibrate or care for this weather vane this earthquake weather vane so it was said to have deteriorated and there's actually not physical evidence left there's only replicas left of this earthquake device so i don't know if it actually counts as a true artifact but modern scholars have tried to replicate it based on these historical documents from the imperial court And in 2005, Chinese seismologists and archaeologists announced their success, and it was the first time they were able to actually detect earthquakes. And it's being showed, hosted, at the Hainan Museum. Now, debunkers claim that since uh, there's no physical evidence, they're doubtful it ever existed in the first place. And one scientist thinks the entire story is fabricated there's a debunker specifically fung who says the documents are contradictory and basically you know uh made to to make that time look magical or special to make the imperial court seem like they were doing something i guess uh technologically advanced more technologically advanced but i think either way it's still an amazing idea like, just the idea of it, that it existed 2,000 years ago, and that it was a documented, is in of itself a, a real accomplishment. Well, it, it actually works. Yeah. Yeah, it actually works. That's crazy. Yeah, I, mean, I never heard of that one before. So, it's it's like a mechanism they built. and it, it detected an earthquake 500 
kilometers away? Now, that was in the imperial documents. There was a claim oh, okay. that the, his peers were skeptical. So, other people in the courts, you know, they thought earthquakes were supernatural and they didn't think that such a machine could exist that would detect earthquakes. And then uh, it successfully, allegedly, detected one. And the, the legend goes that he claimed to, you know, that there was an earthquake and the ball dropped into the toad's mouth. And everyone was skeptical until uh, someone ran in from that city and asked for help because there had been a, a devastating earthquake. And then after that, uh, he was treated with much respect and revered. Hmm. Do the replicas work? Well, it's interesting because there's the one, so there's a lot of replicas, and then there's the one in 2005 that is supposed to be a replica that functions, that's being hosted in that museum. And one of the skeptics says, well, you may say that it works, but it's never actually detected an earthquake. So is it really functional? But uh, Chinese archaeologists argue that it is functional, even if it hasn't worked exactly the way it's supposed to. Oh, huh, okay. So it's sort of controversial, but it's yeah. still, still pretty cool. It was in Chinese textbooks, like in historical textbooks, and then they would show pictures like of the museum and stuff. But actually, this guy came out, this debunker, who's a scientist, the guy Fang, and he was quite vocal, like in the social media and and the regular media too. And so they they took it out of the, the textbooks hmm. for hmm. schools. Ah, um, what a stinker. China, <laughs> China is one of those areas though that has so many amazing extreme like antiquity. You know, yeah. like, like for example, like and some people that may not be in the know about this, um, some of the most well preserved uh, what we would call mummies are have been found in China. And not just China, but like Southeast China, which is a very waterlogged like area. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of those areas, uh, the groundwater doesn't, it's, you don't have to dig very far to get to groundwater, you know? And like some of these, some of these bodies are so extremely well preserved. It makes no sense at all. Like I'm not going to go into, into, you know, any great detail because I'm not trying to steal anybody's thunder here, but it's just, no, you're good. there's some, there's some pretty damn interesting, inter interesting stuff that has happened in, in China. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's, it's uh, there's plenty of episodes that can be drawn off of that area. Yeah, I feel you. All right. Well, I think that's all that Agent Ether had for us. Why don't we move along to Agent ETA? What do you got for us, ETA? Oh hell yeah, brother! All right. So uh, this is one of those uh, subjects that I'm very interested in, and like I've been interested in for a long time, like out of place out of place artifacts or out of place archaeology because like artifacts is one thing but there's also plenty of like uh you know um architectural structures like megalithic structures that you could also and this will be for a later episode i'm, I'm sure we'll do at one point and like uh, that's not what i'm going to be talking about necessarily but um it's one of those things where it's the the accepted timeline of human history i think there there's far more that we than we do, that we don't know than we actually know you know we we, we definitely more recent history we we're, we're pretty sure of right there's a lot of a lot of evidence for stuff but as far as like technical sophistication and you know how uh, ancient actually humans and human sophisticated knowledge you know it could date back a hell of a lot longer than we think it does you know 
So uh, the first one that I'm going to start with is actually something that has been a lot more broadly accepted as the years go on, as the decades go on. There's a lot more evidence that you know has been leading towards the fact that uh, exploration has been done in areas by civilizations that we didn't originally think had, had was possible or had been done just plain. But uh, it's one of those stories that uh, kind of inspired me. It's one of the, the early ones I heard I heard of when I was younger, and like kind of like uh, just made me interested. Like I was like, oh wait a minute, so things things don't always seem like they uh, you know. It turns out some things are are way more uh, you know great or interesting than we originally gave them you know credit for. I guess you could say whatever. But uh, so the the first one I wanted to mention was. The main penny, or what's called, it also has another name called the Goddard coin. And so this was a coin, it's a silver coin, that was found uh, near Goddard, Maine. And um, the, uh, the main penny, you know, whatever you want to call it, um, it actually depicts a uh, Norwegian king, uh, King Olaf Kiri. Uh, he's king of Norway. And uh, he was king of Norway between uh, 1067 and 1093 AD, which is, uh, it predates, you know, like the, the, like Columbus landing on North America, for example, which is, you know, some people still to this day think that, you know, that he was the first one to find North America, which has been tr- proven not to be true. But, uh, you know, Vikings have, were here before because we, there's an increasing amount of like uh, sites, settlement sites, and, um, artifacts that have been found uh, that prove that not to be true. You yeah, know, but more, the, more, most recently, sorry to jump in there, but most recently they found that, uh, forget where off the coast of where, but they had found just recently new uh, artifacts that proved that Vikings were here before. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it totally proves your point, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and there's a couple of them. That, there's two of them in particular. I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about. But um, so uh, this artifact was found in Maine in 1957, and um, it like it's one of those things where when it was originally found, like it shouldn't have been there. You know, supposedly like you know Norwegians ha- had not traveled that far west. It was only thought like you know the farthest west that they had made was, you know, they hit Iceland and Greenland. You know, was was you know the furthest reaches of, uh, at that time, at least where they thought they had gone. And so this artifact was found in, like I said, 1957 is August 18th, um, by a, uh, a fellow named Guy Melgreen. And, uh, he was a, a local resident and, uh, amateur archeologist in the area. And, um, the site was found next to like a native American site that had known to have been active for, for a long time during, uh, you know, um, and uh, so, like, it's one of those things, like I said, it's, it's, it shouldn't have been there, like, especially when it was originally found, you know? But, like, uh, some of these stories, I'm going to uh, kind of blow through a little bit. I'm not going to go into too great a detail, but uh, I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that one because that was one of the earliest ones that, like, kind of uh, got me interested in this type of archaeology, you know? So, the second one that I wanted to mention was the, uh, the Kensington Runestone. Are you guys familiar with this? Nope. No, definitely not. Okay. So it's one of those ones where some people claim it to have been a hoax. Some people claim to, you know, that it was real. Uh, but the, the runes on this runestone have actually been translated. But we'll get to that. 
But um, so what the Kensington runestone is, it's a slab of uh, like a, what's called Greywek, or I, I'm not sure how exactly to pronounce it, but it's a stone. Um, the artifact is about like uh, 30 inches tall by 16 inches wide and like 16 inches deep. And it weighs about 202 pounds. And uh, it has runes all over it. Um, it. It's kind of a really interesting piece. But uh, it was actually found in um, Minnesota, of all places, in 1898. And it was by, uh, by a Swedish immigrant uh, named Olaf Omen. And uh, it was found uh, near Douglas County. And um, it's one of those things, it's like, it, it's so, it seems so very out of place, you know, because the, the language wasn't, I mean, it's a pretty ancient language, you know what I mean? Uh, but anyways, um, so uh, the, the inscriptions that are on this, this uh, runestone, um, it seems to have been left behind by Sc Scandinavian explorers from the 14th century. And uh, it's actually been translated I mean, I have no idea about translations and stuff, but, you know, it's, I have no idea how accurate it is. Like, some people claim that this translation isn't super accurate. Some people claim that it is. But it actually does have um, translatable runes on it. And um, it's very interesting. I, I guess it's, it's not, like, super crazy, but uh, the, the translation actually uh, translated into English um, goes a little bit like this. And I quote, Eight uh, Gotalanders and 22 Northmen on this acquisition journey from Vinland far to the west. We had a camp by two shelters. One day's journey north from this stone. We were fishing one day. After we came home, found ten men red from blood and dead. Uh, Ave Marie, save from hell. Uh, which kind of a, is a, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting quote right there, I think. But uh, it goes on, just like an, another sentence. There are ten men by the inland sea to look after our ships 14 days' journey from this peninsula. Year 1362. Which is, you know, especially at the time that this was found, I mean, very interesting because it's about 130 years before Columbus landed. So, like, you know, that was a very, uh, a very surprising thing for people to to uh, learn, you know, but I forget if I, if I mentioned uh, it was, it was translated by uh, Dr. Richard Nielsen. So if you get anybody wants to look that up, they can go ahead and do that. But it's a, uh, you know, it's a very interesting thing. I, I think the, uh, the farmer Olaf uh, Omen. Um, so I guess his 10 year old son, Edward was the first one that actually noticed like the markings on the stone. And uh, the farmer had, had uh, said like an interview or something later on, that originally he thought it was like an Indian almanac, which I mean, I'm not sure why you would think that because Indian, like a lot of Native Americans from that, that period didn't have like really too much in, in the way of uh, written tradition, you know? So, huh. yeah. Almanac, what would the almanac be containing though of, I mean, like the best hits of what? The Kinks? Autumn <laughs> Almanac? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite Kinks songs. This is the Autumn Almanac. Okay, so moving on. Um, so yeah, the runestone. I just thought that was kind of an interesting one, especially because it, it you know, was found in Minnesota, which it, it could have been you know, acquired by somebody on the coast and then moved inland for whatever reason. you know. So um, these next two ones I'm going to mention are kind of uh, grouped together, but they're potential evidence for 
not necessarily these cultures of having made, like, we'll just say planes or what have you, but maybe they ob- observed them and they were recreating them. That's possible, I think. So the first one that I'll mention is the, the Saqqara bird. And what the Saqqara bird is, it's a bird-shaped artifact that was um, made of sycamore wood. Uh, and it was uh, discovered uh, during a, a 1898 excavation of a tomb in Egypt, uh, the tomb of, uh, let me see if I can get this right, Padi uh, Iman, I think. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, to be quite honest. Paddy Man. <laughs> Paddy Man. Yeah, what's it called? The Paddy Man. Man. <laughs> so uh, it was uh, dated to be uh, uh, around 200 BCE. And um, it's now in the muse- uh, museum in, in Cairo, actually. You could, you could uh, if you're in Cairo, happen to be stopping by, you could go see it, you know? <laughs> but uh, so it's not a very big object. object. It's, uh, it has like a, a wingspan of like 180 millimeters. Um, and it weighs like, I think 39 grams. Let me see. Yes. It's 39.12 grams. And so it, it looks like a bird for sure on the face, but the way it's constructed and like the way the wings are like, um, situated on the body, like it looks more like there's a fuselage and wings like of a plane. And it also has like a vertical, um, like the, the tail is vertical, not like it's not shaped exactly like a bird, you know? It it seems to be one of those things that that could possibly be a plane, and it's one of those things that also have have been recreated and um, made into like you know a, a, a remote control airplane, and it flies. You know, it's I mean, there's some you know you have to put some rudders and stuff on it, or whatever the the name for these uh those those wings are, but yeah, it, it you know it's a potential flying object you know that's being depicted. I think so. The other uh, the second one that I wanted to mention that was um, closely related to this was um, the uh, Quimbaya artifacts. And uh, the Quimbaya artifacts are pretty interesting because a lot of them, uh, so it was found, they're, they're all found in Colombia. And not all these artifacts are like, um, like airplanes or like, you know, it's things that look very close to an airplane. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, is just like, like uh, lizards or, you know, um, amphibians insects and, and stuff like that i mean th- th- there's a lot of objects that were found but uh like the the main figurines are very interesting are the ones that are shaped like what we know nowadays as airplanes and um they're, they're really interesting like i'm sure a lot of people who have watched uh this is actually one of those things one of the few things that i'll mention that has been uh talked about like on ancient aliens and stuff and um I'm like, you know, uh, some of our listeners, they may have heard me talk about ancient aliens before. I'm not a big fan of the show. Just have a re- tattoo of it. Just kidding. What? No, <laughs> no, I got a tattoo of Elmer Fudd, but not that. Anyways. I have a tattoo of the guy that looked like he like bit into a, a wire. Uh, yeah. Hair. Well, and that's kind of the problem that I have with some, some of the stuff is that like, I got to say, if you ever what? meet ETA in person, you got to ask him to see that Elmer Fudd tattoo. It is a doozy. Yeah, yeah. I know you're in there, Wabbit. It's a secret. So, it's an Easter egg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, like, my my problem, like I said, with, with uh, like some of the way that the History Channel, the History Channel depicted like some of those topics, is they sensationalized it too much, and they took it like to like you know in, in a direction that kind of. I mean, it gives it less credibility than rather than more. It makes it seem the topic seem more ridiculous. And I'm obviously speaking in broad generalities here, but. You know, I, I don't know. So some of the stuff that they did, I don't know. I just, I'd like things to be taken a little bit more seriously. You know, now, I'm not saying that I take it everything super seriously, but you know, 
But th- those two, uh, I mean, those artifacts, though, I think it's just, it's very interesting the way that a lot of them are, are, uh, are constructed because I mean, they, they don't look, a lot of these artifacts, they don't look like birds at all. I mean, they look like straight up planes and like some of them, um, and they're, they're tiny little objects. They're, you know, uh, about five to 7.5 centimeters, you know, and two to three inches in diameter. Like it's like, they're pretty, pretty small. Um, and like, uh, it's it just like, like one of them, uh, that's shaped like a plane. It actually has like a Delta wing formation. Like it, like there's no birds out there that have Delta wing type, you know, wings, you know, swept mm-hmm. back like that, you know, you know, maybe a hawk when it's diving, but not naturally when it's flying, you know, but okay. so, um, like one of the, uh, this is another one of those things where actually in 19, 1994, there was a couple of Germans, uh, Peter, uh, Beltling or Belting, sorry. And, uh, Conrad Lubers. Uh, they actually created a simplified radio controlled uh, like airplane based on on a couple of these designs and it it flew really well it was very very stable you know so like why did they make these little figurines the way that they did were they you know did they have that technology or were they uh, creating something that they had observed i mean your guess is as good as mine but i find that to be extremely interesting you know so, okay, moving on to the next one, um, the Nampa figurine. And so with the Nampa figurine, it's a small clay figurine um, of a human wearing like a garments, like, like a dress. Um, it was found in 1889 um, in Na- Nampa, Idaho. So um, Nampa. The reason- Nampa. <laughs> the reason why this one is so very interesting is uh, how deep it was found. So it was, it was found by a crew that were drilling for a well. And uh, it was found at a depth of uh, around 300 feet, which in that area, 300 feet deep means that that sedimentary layer um, was uh, just between, like, it was, it, was, uh, it was within the transition layer between the, uh, um, the Pliocene and the Plasticine era, or whatever it's called. <laughs> but but uh, what that actually means is if this is like a, something that was actually deposited within that sediment at that time, that would make it around two, 2 million years old. And let me just say hmm. that again, 2 million years old. So, I mean, and one of the, it seems like an unusual number. <laughs> that shit cray. Yeah. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it's like a 37 millimeter long object, you know, and um, yeah, it appears to be a clothed woman, you know, and uh, one of the crazy things also is there's there's a layer of basalt above it, uh, above that stratum that that um, like there, it's unlikely that that object, you know, was like dropped somewhere at some point and then organically like was uh, forced into the layer down through layers of sediment and stuff and like down to that 300, you know, foot layer, like it, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, is it possible? Hell if I know I'm not a geologist, but yeah, it's, it's one of those completely out of place artifacts that it, it absolutely makes no sense why it would be there. You know, it just is not, you know, it's, it's crazy. That shit cray. Like I said, you know, what if somebody dug a really deep well and dropped it in and then the layers formed above that. So it appeared to be down there, but it wasn't. It was just because somebody dug like a super, super deep well. 
I, I mean, yeah, Maybe. that's possible. But like I said, like I said, there was a there was a sealed basalt layer above it, and it, there's no mention. I mean, is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's possible. But uh, there was no mention of um, like of of any kind of a uh, old structure have, having been there like that. You know, they didn't find any, as far as I know, they didn't find any evidence for that. Hmm, okay. So I mean, do 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 I know that they looked for that or trying to pay attention? No, I don't know that. You know, so that's I would say, yeah, that, that's a possibility. Was it but perhaps I'd rather the planet that. Venus? You know, possibly. You might, have just, you might have just hit the nail on the head right there. I think I've cracked the case. Some of that swamp gas. <laughs> so okay, so I mean, I have another couple ones. Um, so okay, uh, oh, the London Hammer, also known as the, the London Artifact. The London uh, porn star. Sorry, edit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh. We're we getting into a porn hub territory again. <laughs> that's an here? English. That's an Eng, that's an English porn star right there. <laughs> okay, so uh, when I say London, as it was actually found in 1936 in London, Texas. <laughs> Believe it huh. or not, but uh, um, yeah. So, uh, so that's why the name was given to the artifact. Um, so what it is, it's a, an iron hammer uh, with uh, wood still attached to it, and it's embedded. Um, in 400 million year old limestone. Oh yeah. I've heard about Ain't this that one. that crazy? Yeah. This one's, this one's a, a very well-known, uh, uh, out of place peak piece of, uh, archeology, span you know, or yeah. artifact, rather. But yeah, it's not that big of a hammer either. And, um, so the hammerhead uh, itself is about 16, I'm sorry, uh, six inches long, um, with a diameter of uh, one inch. And, um, it's crazy because, like I said, it's embedded within that rock, and, and it doesn't seem like a hole was drilled into the rock or like a, you know, an orifice was drilled into the rock, and then the hammer was placed there. No, it's like it's inside the rock, you know what I mean? And um, it's, 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 it's a pretty interesting artifact, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a man-made tool. And, uh, it's, it's encrusted, I mean, encased in, you know, lower Cretaceous rock, you know, but, uh, so the hammer was uh, supposed to have been found, um, by, uh, a couple and, and, uh, the, you know, some of the research, I couldn't find the female's name, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but Max Hahn, uh, and, uh, a female that he was with, I guess, uh, I don't think they were married, were walking along, um, a, a creek called the Red Creek, uh, near the town of London. And that, that's why it's called the, you know, the London hammer. But, uh, so they say they spotted a curious piece of rock, you know, uh, sticking up and it was loose and they saw like the wood that was embedded in it. And, um, they didn't, uh, actually find out, uh, that that hammer head was in there until like a decade later when, uh, uh, his son Max broke open the rock and found that the hammer was concealed within, you know? So it's like one of those things where like, they kind of just picked it up because they thought it was cool looking and, you know, they, they saw the wood sticking out and like, they're like, oh, that's cool. You know, that's different. Maybe it's like, you know, uh, what do you call it? Petrified wood or something, you know? But yeah, they, they didn't find it until later, found out until later until it was broken by their son, which I think is kind of funny, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of those, that's one of those ones that I think is worth looking into. Like I said, I'm kind of running through these uh, a little fast because uh, there's so many to mention and like, there's so many more that um, I'm sure we can make like, if we really want to four or five episodes, just running through shit, just like the same pace that we're doing right now. You know what I mean? Well, we can do it. We can just do, I mean, we don't even have to, I can just kick it off next week or whatever. Or Oh no, no, no. I, I only have one more thing that I was planning on it. Well, I mean, there's so many other things that I really kind of want to talk about, but I don't want to sleep tonight. Let's just go, man. Let's keep going for like six more hours. 
No, 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 I'm not. No, I'm electing because I'm, I'm either going to say, let's just have an open discussion about it. Cause you guys know about it and, and I'm not going to hit a bunch of dates and archeologists and this and that. Be yeah. a little sweet well, and, then, and that's why I'm kind of moving through this fast. I'm not trying to take up too much time. You know, I just couldn't decide. I couldn't decide on one single thing. So I decided to cover a bunch of shit, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Why not? Okay. So the last thing that I'll talk about is, is the famous Piri Reese map which is, I think, a very important artifact. So it's a, it's a world map that was compiled in 1513 uh, by Ottoman uh, admiral and cartographer named Piri Reis. And uh, I'm not sure, like, the actual pronunciation of his first name and last name. I don't know if I'm quite doing it right. I think it's like Piri or something like that, Rice or whatever. Anyways, uh, he was an admiral for the, uh, Adam, admiral for the uh, Ottoman Empire, uh, a naval admiral. And so, um, unfortunately, like, there's only about one-third of the map um, that survives to this day. But uh, it shows the coastlines of like Western Europe and North Africa and, and the coast of Brazil uh, with like pretty decent accuracy. And um, you even see like some, uh, some of the Northern seas as well in the Atlantic, um, like, like uh, you know, obviously like the bodies of like, you know, um, Great Britain and Ireland. And actually off to the West, uh, people have surmised that one of the objects of the islands that isn't there anymore to this day, but you can still find it like a, it's not shallow, but within within like uh, probably around like the uh, the last ice age, it would have been above water, and uh, that's called High Brazil. So like it's something that we actually know that is there, but it would have only been above water during you know the last ice age, which is interesting because uh, Pierre Reese himself um, had notated on the uh, the map that um, he used other sources. You know, um, he used at least uh, ten Arab sources, and um, also, uh, four Indian maps, at least. So, uh, I mean, whatever maps that he was using were, were, you know, supposed to have been ancient to him at his time, even, you know? So, I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. Like some, some of the stuff that is depicted on this map. And one of the most impressive things about this map is, uh, that there's a, uh, landmass at, at the South, um, in the Atlantic ocean, at the South of the the Atlantic Ocean below the uh, Bra- the eastern Brazilian coast that many people think is actually Antarctica. But the crazy thing about it is that it depicts, if this is Antarctica, it depicts it without like ice or snow on it. And it actually like depicts like rivers and tributaries. And um, some of these areas have been proven to like, like with a uh, ground penetrating radar and such, um, they can tell that like, all right, well, it's, if this is Antarctica, that's actually somewhat accurate because we can tell that these uh, different like deltas and tributaries and stuff um, were actually there. And wherever they were depicted on the map seems to have been relatively the same areas that they have been found on that coast. That's that certain part of the coastland uh, south of like, you know, South America in between like South America. And uh, I guess if you drew a straight line down from like, you know, South Africa, you know, within that area, those, you know, between those two uh, boundaries, I guess you could say. Hmm. But yeah, that, that'd be the pure reset. That's one of those uh, we could do. We could definitely do a, a whole episode on that map alone for sure. Yeah, maybe we should. I, that's I've heard of that before. I think it's that'd be a really good topic to expand upon. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Heck yeah. I, I can I can stop right there. You know, there's I got more stuff that I could talk about, but I think no, I'll uh, hand over the no. You don't. No, I'm just gonna no. talk about something we all know and love: the Antikythera. Oh yeah, mechanism. Oh yeah, we all know it. We all love it. We all dream it. We all breathe it. We all eat it. 
No. Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> a Roman ship that was carrying Greek treasures and stuff like that. Uh, it burst open or it, it sunk. It hit a bunch of rocks because the coast that it's near is is really jagged. It's in between the Asian continent and Italy. And as they were making their way through Antikythera, they sunk because they hit the reef and they just uh, lost all their shit. <laughs> they lost all their loot. And that was not good, not good. And then so flash forward to 1901, I hope I'm that's correct, that we unearthed it. Um, a couple sponge divers went and were looking for them sponge, and they saw a bronze hand sticking out of the ground, and they reported it to the Greek authorities. They came out, and for whatever reason... They found a whole plethora and a whole trove of treasure, but the one that came out the most unique, which they actually really didn't pay that much attention at the beginning because it looked like just a hunk of metal, was, you know, this this gear mechanism that, you know, it it just didn't look like it should be there, if that makes sense. So it's just, uh, but you guys are familiar with it, right? You guys know what it's about. Oh, yeah. Oh, really yeah, talking yeah, about yeah absolutely and the reason why they call Antikythera is because they found they found it off of uh, the Greek island of Antikythera yeah that's I didn't say that correctly I'm just thinking of that because I said like well, yeah. like in between the Asian continent and Italy so unless somebody's looking at a map when I'm saying that that won't make sense but uh, I think uh, what did you guys think it was before finding out what it is now. That makes sense. So, well, I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I found out both at the same time because, like, like whenever I found out about it, I, I couldn't tell you what year it was. It was a while ago, but you know, it was part of like a, a documentary that was describing it as what people think, uh, you know, it is now, which is. I mean, do you want to explain it or? Well, I can explain it. No, yeah. Well, I yeah, mean, you go either ahead. way. Go ahead. I was just gonna say that. Yeah, I mean, you're on. The I did right. not. I did not get an opportunity to say what I thought it was at first. What. I what? thought it was a Pokédex. Oh, Sorry, yeah. apologies, apologies. <laughs> a Pokédex? <laughs> yeah. No. Anyways, please continue. Uh, early age <laughs> Game Boy. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I just, uh, I mean, I, me personally, I thought it was gonna be some, like it just didn't look like it should be it from the time that they were saying. I mean, like the, where they were aging it, and it, you know, you think. Oh, did it advance civilization, you know, leave something behind? Or is it, I've heard theories that it was a piece of a time machine that was like left or it was something that we were dabbling in and it got lost in, you know, some sort of void and it just popped up there. Or it's just a message from our past that, you know, there was an advanced civilization before us and that was a remnant of their, of uh, their existence. So, but no, it wasn't that crazy. Come to find out, I just call it a, a calculator, but it's actually more or less a, you know, early on computer where you could actually fast forward, you know. Wait, wait, wait. The Romans had so it follows, a computer? It tracks the, uh, the progress of the moon. Not just the moon. Eclipse. No, well, the Rome, it was Greeks, but. Through tracking the progress of the moon, you can, you can, um. Guess when uh, pretty accurately when it, when an eclipse is going to happen. That that exactly, and then also followed the variable motions of the moon, as well as you know uh, you know you already mentioned it come like predict eclipses, 
but that bronze, I think the outer housing of it was, you know, made out of gold or what, or whatever it was, not just complete bronze, but the bronze mechanisms that were inside actually had the same amount of, uh, oh man, the mechanisms. No, I'm sorry. Ah, the gears. Yeah. I didn't write it down. No, that's it. I, I love how I do this. I'll, I'll find something that I'm interested in and I'm like, Oh, that's cool. I'm gonna write that down. And then I don't write it down. So <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. You're like, no, I'll remember that piece. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, yeah. No, but, uh, going back to it, but no, I just like the fact that, you know, it's basically an early, you know, not Google per se, but I mean, it was, you know, it was an early, you know, calculator and you could if you had theories that you wanted to work out like oh where would you know the moon and the sun be you know 40 years from now or like whatever how many years from now it will tell you the exact position and where that's gonna be i find it fascinating that you know greeks weren't even supposed to have bronze like so i mean for them to have that at that time is very interesting. And not that they weren't supposed to have bronze, but not in that way, not with gear mechanisms and actual like clockwork, you know, clocksmiths that stepped forward and actually reviewed it. You know, there's mechanisms that, you know, not even modern watches have. So I just thought that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's that stuff is not simple to make all those gears and things. But I mean, it just, it's fascinating that that's what they were getting into. I mean, if you also think about, uh, what Arthur C. Clarke mentioned, uh, eons ago, it feels like, uh, he said if the ancient Greeks understood the technology they were working with, they would have reached the stars or the moon 300 years later than, you know, in their civilization, 300 years earlier than when we actually went up to the moon, which is, you know, again, pretty, pretty, you know, astonishing in itself. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I could, but there's this, there's also writings and it, to have a manual that's actually printed onto the actual housing of that mechanism, like just to how to use it. It was a basic user guide and they didn't even know that was on there until they 3d x-rayed it. And you know, it's, there's a fascinating uh, documentary you can watch by the BBC that's on YouTube. It's very short, but really cool. How is it etched on there to where they couldn't see it? Uh, I'm not familiar with that part of it. Uh, it was like, so like in inside in the inner workings and on the actual plate, there was, oh, you know, okay. actual like words and other things that would discover that, you know, like writings, signatures and not signatures, but symbols and stuff like that. So this is why I waited to the end, though. So <laughs> I didn't really have that much time to psych myself up. So I apologize. I've been really distracted today. But, but uh, yeah, if we start off one. next week, I can... Go in more That's detail. a good one. We could do more on that. I mean, there we could probably do a whole episode on just that one particular, you know, the anti, you know, anti catharsis mechanism. What is it called? <laughs> Anticathera. Anticathera. <laughs> ah, all right. Well, I think that's about that's basically everything I have. Is that is that all you got on the uh, the mechanism there, Agent Kruger? And, no, I was going to say all everything I do is basically a tangent. <laughs> everything <laughs> I I say. Mm -hmm. but no i am good well all right that about wraps it up for this week's episode 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by leaving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts and suggesting the show to your friends. Keep it strange.